I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 19, specifically. Psalm chapter 19. That is going to be our text for today. I will preach, and we will learn from God's Word, and then we will respond to God's Word. Uh, I pray in obedience, and one of the ways that we'll corporately respond at the end is by singing songs of praise to our God. And I believe that our passage today will lead us to want to worship our great God. Psalm chapter 19, the title of our message is Redeeming Revelation. Redeeming Revelation. So I'm going to read this passage, and, uh, and then we will jump in to seeing what God has for us today in His Word. Psalm chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Church, this is the word of the Lord. What we believe matters. Would you agree with me? What we believe matters. And it matters what we believe. Would you agree with that second statement? It matters what we believe, especially when it comes to the things of God. Now, those statements are similar, but they're also saying something slightly different. The first statement, what we believe matters, means that our beliefs actually impact our lives. Our beliefs have a huge effect on how we live and how we respond and how we interact with the world around us. Our beliefs are not just facts in our minds that we use to answer trivia questions. Our beliefs are directives which lead and guide us in our lives. If we say we believe something and it's not impacting our lives, we probably really don't believe it. Now, secondly, that second statement, it matters what we believe, means that we must think carefully about what we hold to be true because we don't want to believe what is false. We must not aimlessly say, well, I believe this, or, oh, yeah, I believe that, without actually thinking it through. And that second statement, it matters what we believe, it carries weight because the first statement carries weight. And we could say it this way. The reason it matters what we believe is because what we believe actually matters. In other words, if what we believe doesn't matter, it doesn't have any impact on our lives, then, you know what, it really doesn't matter what we believe. We can believe whatever we want to believe. However, if what we believe does matter, and when it comes to the things of God... It does matter. What we believe about God does matter. Then it matters what we believe. 
when it comes to God and the things of God. Now, over the next several weeks, I want us to consider some of the core beliefs that we have as Christians. Some of the core beliefs. One of the ways we, we study things about God is, is by kind of categorizing the teachings of the Bible into different topics. Um, and this system of theology is often referred to, I'm going to give you a fancy word, okay? It's called systematic theology. All right, it's called systematic theology. That's what, that's what it means. Don't, don't be scared off by that word. That just simply means that we have a system of studying the things about God, and it's by kind of organizing the things that the Bible teaches into various topics. For instance, let me give you, let me give you some of these topics. We can study about the doctrine of revelation, or we can study about the doctrine of God, or the doctrine of humanity, or the doctrine of sin, or the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or the doctrine of salvation, or the doctrine of the church, or the doctrine of last things, or sometimes referred to as end times. Now, if this were a systematic theology class, which some of you in here have taken, or maybe you are taking right now, we would take each of these doctrines individually, and then we would say, we're going to say the, say the doctrine of the church, and then we would try to look up all the verses in the Bible that have to do with the church, and it would, all those verses would inform our thinking of the church. That's not what we're going to do. That's one way to study this, but that's not what we're going to do. Instead, what I want us to do over the next, uh, this, this next series of, of, of weeks, I want us to examine one passage each week, one passage of Scripture, which informs our thinking concerning that particular doctrine that we'll be looking at. And specifically, I want us to do so in the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms. Often when we think about Psalms, we think about how we emotionally respond to God or, or how, um, how God helps control our emotions. We often think about the Psalms having to do with our emotions. And, and that's, that's right. It, it does. Because the Psalms are songs, right? The Psalms are poetry. And, and poetry, especially songs, are meant to arouse our emotions. And, and that's definitely true. It's definitely true of Psalms. It's definitely true of these Psalms that we have recorded in Scripture. But these songs have lyrics. They, they have words to them. And, and these words shape our thinking and our beliefs. It's absolutely true when it comes to these psalms. These psalms are full of emotion, no doubt, but they are also full of rich doctrine and are meant to shape our beliefs about God. Now remember, our goal in this series is not to say everything that we could possibly say about each of these uh, categories or topics um, of, of theology. We, we, can't, we can't do that in, in just a few sermons. We can't talk about everything the Bible says. But that's okay. What I want to do, what our goal is going to be, is to study several different psalms and allow the words of these psalms to penetrate our hearts and minds and shape our beliefs so that it's just one more step in us growing in making sure that we believe the right things. Because what you believe matters, and so it matters what you believe. Today we're going to begin with the doctrine of revelation. Now let me tell you what, what I don't mean by that. Because this one can be a little confusing. What's the first thing that pops in your mind when you hear me say revelation, and we're sitting in church and we got our Bibles open? Probably the last book of the Bible, right? That's, that's probably what comes to your mind. That's not what we mean by the doctrine of revelation, Okay. When we think about the doctrine of revelation, I want you to think about the word reveal. Think about the word reveal. The doctrine of revelation refers to God's entire act of revealing himself to humanity. Certainly he does that in the book of Revelation, but he also does that in all the books of the Bible and even in other ways as we will see today. 
one psalm which greatly informs our thinking concerning the doctrine of Revelation is Psalm chapter 19. And I think as we study this psalm, we're going to learn this, that God reveals himself to humanity as the gloriously righteous redeemer. God reveals, there's that word reveals, all right, doctrine of revelation. God reveals himself, he makes himself known to humanity as the gloriously righteous redeemer. The gloriously righteous redeemer. Again, don't think of the word, the the book of Revelation today. I want you to think of something that we wouldn't know unless someone revealed it to us. Something we wouldn't know unless someone revealed it to us. For instance, how many of y'all like the show The Price is Right? Be honest. Come on, come on. All right, we got some hands. I know more. I know more of y'all like the show. Okay, you just don't want to admit it. All right, so so maybe you don't. That's fine. Uh, One of the fun things about that show um, is is not knowing what the big prizes are going to be. And we don't know why, because they're hidden behind a curtain. And so we, if you like the show, you sit on the edge of your seat and you, and you wait to see what is behind that curtain. And really, we're, we're, we're waiting for those words. You ready? It's a new car. There you go. All right. We got, we got somebody that's tracking with me. It's a new car. Okay. We enjoy watching. We sit there and we are waiting for that revelation of what that prize is. Well, friends, there's something far better than a new car which has been revealed to us. And that is God himself. God himself. And he is the one who reveals himself to us. God reveals himself to us. Apart from his divine revelation of himself to us, we wouldn't know anything about him or what he expects of us or how we are to live um, or how we can live with him. Now, there's two basic parts of the doctrine of Revelation, and the second part has two parts to it. So it's really three. One part, and then another part, and this part has two parts to it. Okay? Um, the first um, is, is called uh, general revelation, and, and that has to do with God's creation. All right? General revelation has to do with God's creation. We can know general things about God. The second one, the second part, is special revelation. We can know some specific things about God. It's special revelation. And this is, there's two parts of that. One is his written word. God has specifically revealed himself through his written word. And the second part of that special revelation is Jesus. God has revealed himself specifically to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 19 focuses on the general revelation and the written word part of special revelation. But as we will see, even though this psalm is back in the Old Testament before Jesus came to this earth, I think it also hints at that third way God has revealed himself to us. That is through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me share with you four things this morning that we can learn from Psalm 19. The first thing we learn is this. God has revealed himself through his creation. What do we learn from that? That he is worthy of glory. God has revealed himself through his creation. Where does that, what does that leave us with? Well, it leaves us understanding that he is worthy of glory. These first six verses in this psalm focus on general revelation. Remember, general revelation is creation. All that God has made. You walk outside and you open your eyes and you're looking at general revelation. You are looking at God's creation. The, um, the Bible begins with some very important words. You know these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All that we see Even what we can't see in creation, God has made. And here the psalmist in Psalm 19 focuses on one part of God's creation. He focuses on the heavens. Now the word heavens is referring to everything we see when we look up. Don't think 
heaven like the, the streets of gold where God lives. Think the heavens. It's referring to the sky and the solar system. Where everything, you walk outside and you look up, that is the heavens. That's what this psalmist is referring to here. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies. Verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Church, the God who spoke creation into existence is speaking to us today through his creation. Verse 1 tells us what creation is telling us. Creation is declaring that God exists and that he is worthy of glory. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy of our allegiance and obedience. That's what it means for God to be glorious. And that's what creation is saying. Every time you gaze at the stars, every time you stare into a sunset with all the colors and splendor and majesty, every time you stand mesmerized um, in front of ranges of mountains or in front of crashing waves, uh, students, every time you open up your science textbook and study about the way our bodies work or the way ecosystems work, or or the way uh, geological layers of the earth are arranged, or the way a plant absorbs sunlight, or the way the earth revolves around the sun. Every time we look at creation, God is speaking to you, and He's speaking to me, and He is saying, I exist, and I am worthy of glory. And verse 2 tells us how often God is speaking this message of His glory to us. Notice verse 2. It says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, day and night, that's 24-7 in modern lingo, right? 24-7, day and night, creation is proclaiming the glory of God. How often is creation speaking to us concerning God's worthiness to be worshipped? All of the time. And then as we move into verses 3 and 4, the psalmist focuses on the scope or the range of creation's declaration. In other words, it's answering this question, where does creation speak this message of God's glory? Creation is speaking the message of God's glory. It's speaking it all the time. Where does it speak it? Well, the answer is everywhere. Everywhere God's creation is declaring the glory of God. Verses 3 through uh, verse 4 says, beginning of verse 4 says, There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Friend, it doesn't matter Where you go in this universe, you will always be surrounded by God's creation. And where God's creation is, God's message that He is worthy of glory is being proclaimed. Everywhere. Then in the rest of verse 4 through verse 6, David points to the Son as an analogy for the way in which creation declares uh, that God is worthy of glory. Notice these words. He says, in them... He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. I think verse five is speaking to the intensity to which creation declares the glory of God. His creation always, all the time, which we've seen and everywhere, just kind of whispering about the glory of God. Or is it shouting to us that God is glorious? Well, I think it's the latter. Uh, Think about it. How does a bridegroom leave his chamber? With his head hung low, dragging his feet, mumbling under his breath, or with a pep in his step, dressed in his best, shouting with excitement? Well, I think it's the second one. A pep in his step, dressed in his best, shouting with excitement. And that's how creation is declaring the glory of God. Or consider a strong man running a race. 
How does a strong man run a race? Does he limp along at the back, slowing down with every step, with no one really paying attention to him? Or does he speed along at the front, grabbing everyone's attention as he does well what he has been trained to do? Well, I think you would agree with me. It's the second scenario. That's how the strong man runs the race. And that's how creation is declaring God's glory with deep intensity, which grabs our attention. The analogy of the sun continues in verse 6, and basically it repeats what we learned in verses 2 through 4. Verse 6 says, Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. Again, the continual nature, think about the sun, the continual nature of the sun rising and setting, rising and setting, rising and setting, points to the continual declaration that God is worthy of glory. And the way in which the sun's heat touches every part of the earth. In some way, shape, or form, the sun's heat is touching the earth. That points to the fact that all humanity can hear creation's voice shouting that God is worthy of glory. Perhaps we could summarize these verses this way. Creation is always powerfully declaring to all humanity that God is glorious. That's what creation is saying what creation is saying. Now, where does that leave us? Well, according to Romans chapter 1, God's testimony of himself in creation leaves us all accountable before God to seek him and to live for his glory. We are held accountable before God based on his general revelation of himself to seek after him with our lives and to live for his glory. Now, some people hear more from creation than creation is actually saying. Think about it. They think creation is spiritually alive, spiritually alive, and it's guiding them and leading them. They look to the stars to figure out things about themselves instead of looking to the stars simply to learn that God is glorious. They think the stars or other aspects of the heavens are gods instead of creations of the one true God. They hear more out of creation than creation is saying. But on the other hand, others hear too little from creation. They look at the stars and they only hear facts about the material size and composition of the stars and they explain their existence with the theory of evolution and reject the existence of god and those folks hear too little creation is saying way more to them than that it's saying that there is a god who has created this and he is glorious church we don't want to hear more or less than what creation is saying to us creation is telling us that god is glorious So God has revealed himself through his creation. He is worthy of glory. But as awesome as creation is, it's not enough. It's not enough. You can look at the stars and walk away saying, wow, the God who made all of that is definitely the most powerful being in existence and is definitely worthy of worship, worthy of glory. But you would also walk away not knowing exactly who this God is or what He expects of you, or how you can give Him glory in a way that He would accept. You wouldn't know how to worship Him. But thankfully, church, thankfully, God did not stop revealing Himself to us just through His creation. He didn't stop there. And so our second truth today is this. God has revealed Himself through His written Word. God has revealed Himself through His written Word. And what do we learn from this? Well, a lot. The main truth I want us to notice today is that we learn from his written word that he is perfectly righteous. 
He is perfectly righteous. God has revealed Himself to us through His written Word. And He, God, is perfectly righteous. You remember at the beginning I said the second category of revelation is called, do you remember? Special. Special revelation. Now as we move into verse 7, the psalmist shifts from this general revelation, which is creation, to special revelation. Remember the word special simply means specifically. And specifically, the specific part of special revelation that we see beginning in verse 7 is God's written word. Now church... We could, spend, we could spend several weeks just studying this particular psalm. I feel like I already raced through the first six verses. Um, and we're fixing to race through the next several verses. So we can't, we can't say everything that we might would want to say uh, about these verses. But I do want you to at least see the big picture. In verses 7 through 9, David gives six different terms for God's word. He gives six adjectives, which are words that describe the terms of God's word. And he gives six statements regarding what God does. He does all of these in very poetic fashion. It's beautiful how he does it. So he gives six different words or terms for God's word, six descriptions of God's word, and six statements regarding what God's word does. Look at verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We'll look at this one a little more closely, and then we'll, we'll kind of um, breeze through some of the rest of them just for time's sake. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word law is the term for God's Word. That's the first of the six terms he gives for God's Word. The adjective is the word perfect. It's, what, it's the word that describes God's Word. And then the words reviving the soul is the statement regarding what God's Word does. And this is the first one. Remember, there's six in each of these categories. The psalmist does this six times. In verses 7 through 9, so I want you to kind of scan through verses 7 through 9 as I, as I, um, as I give these listings of these words and descriptions and statements about what God's word does. The word law, we'll start back in verse 7. The word law, we see there in verse 7, which really, when just pause for a minute. When you see the word law there, that word law is not necessarily referring to like the Ten Commandments or just some specific set of rules. That word law is used sometimes in Scripture just to refer to God's word. And that's what that word law is referring to. It's God's revelation. When, when, when the Israelites thought of God's law, they were thinking about um, really the first five books of the Bible, which aren't just law. They're narrative as well, okay, and instruction and different things. So think, when you see the word law, think God's word, God's written word to us. All right, let's, let's go. We've got to go kind of quickly. Um, so law is testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules or, or judgments. Now, I'll back up to one. It's the word fear. And, and I know that's like, how do you use the word fear as a term for God's word? Well, there he's using, using some um, uh, maybe poetic devices. He, the, 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 the word fear is what he hopes and knows that God's word should produce in us. Okay, So he can use that as a, as a synonym for the word of God, fear, because that's what God's word should produce in us. Not a... Not a the bad kind of fear, we're scared of God, but the right kind of fear where we know that God is worthy of our worship. Okay, so those are the words he uses to describe the word of God. Now notice the adjectives he uses, those words that, um, excuse me, those are the words that he uses as synonyms for the word of God. Now he's going to use some six words to describe the word of God. Just listen to these words. It's perfect. It's sure or trustworthy, depending on your translation. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. And it's true. And then he goes on and he says that God's word revives the soul, back in verse 7, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, 
And then the sixth one is actually found in verse 11. When he gets to the end of verse 9, he, he, he extends his description by saying, and he's righteous altogether. And then he extends his description even more by going into verse 10 and saying, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And then he gives the sixth statement about what God's word does. It provides warning and reward. We see that in verse 11. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Now again, I could preach a whole sermon just on verses 7 through 11. These verses teach us to love God's word, church. They teach us to read and study God's word. They teach us to view God's word as the highest authority for our lives. They teach us to base our lives on God's word. They teach us to obey God's word. I just want you to notice one main thing that God's word reveals about God. And that is this, that God is perfectly righteous. I know that description is kind of redundant to say perfectly righteous because to be righteous is to be perfect and to be perfect is to be righteous. But I want to emphasize how perfect and how righteous he is. God is perfectly righteous. God's creation reveals that God exists and that he is powerful and creative and orderly. But God's word shines a light on God's moral character. God's word reveals that God is perfect in all of his ways. Just look at those descriptions, those six descriptions of God's word. Pure, it's true, it's clean, it's right. And if God is worthy of glory, and if God is perfectly righteous, then the way we should glorify Him is by imitating His righteousness. That is by living in perfect obedience to His word. And so we look at creation and we say, there's a God and He is worthy of worship. We look at God's word and we say, He is a perfect God. He's perfect in every way. And so the way that I must worship Him is by being perfect. But now we're presented with a problem. Don't you see? There's a problem here. It's not a problem with God. It's a problem with us. I'm not perfect. And neither are you. And as David reflects on the perfectness of God, he is immediately confronted with the fact that he is not perfect. He is a sinner. And so the third thing, church, we learn is this. God has revealed our problem. God, in his revelation of himself to us, has revealed to us our problem. And this is our problem. We are not righteous, though we know we need to be. We are not righteous, though we know that we need to be. All of a sudden, the mood of the psalm changes. I mean, just think about where we've been so far in this psalm. Psalm, the heavens are magnificent. The law of God is sweeter than honey. God is glorious and perfect. Everything is great until David begins to talk about himself. And then things change. When I was about 15, I had the opportunity to meet a pitcher for a major league baseball team. And this pitcher is one of the greatest pitchers that's ever pitched. He went on uh, several years later to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And as he walked up to me before the game, and he reached out his hand to shake my hand, back when we were allowed to do such crazy things, um, two thoughts immediately went through my mind. I, I mean, I can see like it was yesterday. He walks up, he, he, he reaches out his hand, he's very kind, and, uh, and here's my 15-year-old self, and I'm like, 
And I reached out and shake his hand, and two thoughts went through my mind. One first, and the second one immediately following the first. The first thought was this. Wow, this guy's huge. <laughs> and I mean like muscular, like tall, massive. Just He could pick me up and throw me across this baseball field if he wanted to. And then right on the heels of that thought was the second thought. I'm not very big. I'm not very strong. I'm kind of puny. In fact, I'm very puny compared to him. As soon as, as soon as he walked up and I walked up to him, as soon as I looked at him, I noticed how large he was, how strong he was, and how scrawny of a 15-year-old I was. Church, in a similar way, as soon as the psalmist considers how righteous God is, he is immediately aware of how unrighteous he is. Now, the first, the first thought has to come first. We've got to see God for who He is. But immediately, it points out, it exposes how unlike God we are. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, He best knows Himself who best knows the Word. We could camp out on that a lot. To say things like, Maybe one reason we don't know ourselves well is because we don't know God's Word well. But we'll leave that thought for another time. Now, as we'll see in a moment, what we know about ourselves in light of God's written Word is that we really can't even comprehend the depth of our sin. But it's not only that David knows that he is unrighteous here in these verses. He knows that his unrighteousness is a problem. He, he, he knows that it's a problem. You see, some people know that they're unrighteous, but they don't think it's that big of a deal. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not perfect, but it's not, not that big of a deal. David, however, knows that because God is righteous, God will only accept those who are righteous. Therefore, David knows his sin is a big problem because it means that he will be rejected by God. And so he longs to be seen as righteous in God's eyes. He says in verses 12 through 13, who can discern his errors? And I think there he is referring to man's errors and the implied answer. It's kind of a rhetorical question. The replied answer is that God can. God knows all of our errors. Who can discern his errors? Who can discern humanity's sin? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I want you to notice with me a few things in these verses. First, I want you to notice David's awareness of the depth of his sin. He asks to be declared innocent from hidden faults. You catch that? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. You realize that we are full of sin that we don't even know that we have committed? <laughs> He's saying, I have committed sin and I don't even know what they are. They're hidden from me. I'm not righteous enough to even know my unrighteousness. Friend, if you can confess every sin you know you have committed in the past week, there would still be sin that was left unconfessed. Because we're not wise enough nor godly enough to see all of our faults. Again, I'd like to quote Charles Spurgeon. He said this, The transgressions which we see and confess are like the farmer's samples which he brings to market when he has left his granary full at home. It's a very rich analogy. When we go to God and confess our sins, which we should, we ought to finish with this thought in our mind. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I still have a warehouse back, back in the depths of my heart full of sin that I haven't even confessed because I don't even, I, I'm so bad I don't even know how bad I am. Second, we notice David's awareness of the power of sin. He notice, he, we see him notice the, 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 he's aware of the depth of his sin. We see that he's aware of the power of his sin. 
He speaks of presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are sins that you commit arrogantly or defiantly. Like you know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. It's like what's called a flagrant foul. David asks to be protected from these sins so that he doesn't become a slave to this type of sin. He knows that sin has the power to rule over them. Notice he says, help them not have dominion over me. I don't want the sin to rule over me. Now, Jesus exposed the reality of this truth for all of us when he said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Friend, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. God's creation declares the glory of God, but we reject God and try to get glory for ourselves. God's written word tells us how to live, but we reject God's way for our way. Sin is the biggest problem in your life and in my life. But then third, I want you to notice in those two verses, David's incredible hope. Instead of being overpowered by sin, he wants to be free from sin. And he actually speaks this with a hope that God will actually free him from his sin. He says, then... I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now, I think this, is, this speaks volume to what the psalmist is communicating to us here. The word blameless in this verse here is actually the same word used in verse 7 to describe God's law as perfect. So do you see what's happening? God, when God reveals to us that He is perfect, we immediately see our imperfection and we immediately see our need to be perfect. He says, your law is perfect. Declare me innocent and perfect in your sight. He goes on in verse 14 to say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Friends, God's revelation of himself reveals that we have a problem. We are not righteous, though we know we need to be. Every time you feel guilt or shame when you do something wrong, that is evidence that you know you are not righteous, but that you should be righteous. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel guilt or shame. Every time you try to do something good to make up for the bad thing that you have done, that is evidence that you are not righteous, but you know you should be righteous. Otherwise, you wouldn't try to make up for the bad thing that you've done by doing something good. There's something inside of you and there's something inside of me that's signaling to us that our Creator is not pleased with us. And having displeased God is the worst thing in the world because it means that we are under His wrath. It means that we should be punished by Him. Now, it's at this point that we have to ask a crucial question. And here it is. If we are not righteous, but we need to be righteous, because God only accepts those who are righteous, then how can we become righteous? It's the greatest question for us as humans. How can we become righteous? There's really only two paths that we can try to take in answering this question. One path leads us deeper into unrighteousness and eventually to hell. The other path leads us to righteousness and eventually to heaven. Here are the two paths. Either we work really hard to try to make ourselves righteous or we depend upon God to rescue us from our unrighteousness. That's really the only two choices. We either try to work really hard to make ourselves righteous or we depend upon God to make us righteous or to rescue us from our unrighteousness. However you want to say that. 
Listen, every religion, every belief system will take you down one of those two paths. And Christianity, genuine Christianity, Christianity which finds its ultimate authority in the written revelation of God, is the only one which will take you down the path of righteousness leading to heaven. With his final statement in this psalm, we see David choose to depend upon God to rescue him. Number four, church, our fourth truth today is this. God has revealed the solution. Praise the Lord. That's not, that's not what you're going to write down, but you can if you want to. I just had to say, praise the Lord. God has revealed the solution. We can be made righteous by Him through His redeeming work. We, church, can be made righteous by Him through His redeeming work. Notice what David calls God. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Notice what David calls God. He says, he says, you are the rock and you are the redeemer. He asked God to make him acceptable in his sight. Remember, because God is perfectly righteous, He can only accept those who are perfectly righteous. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so David's request is to be made acceptable in God's sight, which is a request to be made perfect, to be made righteous. But David doesn't say, make me acceptable because of my good works, God. Or make me acceptable because I read your word. Or make me acceptable because I go to church. Or make me acceptable because I do more good things than bad things. Or make me acceptable because I've tried to make up for all the bad things that I've done in my life. That's not what he says. David's request to be made righteous, to be made perfect, to be made acceptable in God's sight is not rooted in anything that he has done, but it's rooted in who God is. God has revealed himself to be David's rock and David's redeemer. This is huge for us as sinners. The God who is perfectly righteous and thus has set a standard of perfection is also a rock and a redeemer for sinners who fail to live up to the standard of His Word. And yet, trust in Him will make us righteous because God is willing to rescue us. Sounds like we're about to be lifted up to glory. I don't know about you, but I'll be ready. I'll be ready. Why don't you think about that word rock for just a minute? Just tune that out for a minute. We'll, we'll figure it out. Think about the word rock. It's probably because I was talking too loud. God trying to tell me to quiet down a little bit. Think about the word rock. Rock means that God is a strong refuge of salvation. We can go to the previous psalm to get a beautiful description of what it means that God is the rock. Psalm chapter 18, verses 1 through 3 says this, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. God is the rock. Hey, if y'all just want to kill the whole sound system, that's fine. I'll just talk really loud. There we go. All right. Here we go. All right. Listen, listen, listen. So God is a rock, a strong fortress. It means that he's salvation. That's what David means when he calls the word rock. That God is a, is a salvation, a place of salvation. Then we got the word redeemer. 
It's incredible, the word redeemer. A redeemer was one who took on the responsibility of rescuing a person out of a miserable life of rejection. That's what a redeemer was in the old person. Someone who took on the responsibility of rescuing someone out of a miserable life of rejection. For instance, for instance, the brother of a man who died leaving his wife as a widow was to be a kinsman redeemer by marrying his widowed sister-in-law and therefore rescuing her from a miserable life of poverty. Another way we can think about this, a redeemer, is this. A slave could be redeemed if someone paid the purchase price for him and then set him free. A redeemer is someone who took on the responsibility of rescuing a person out of a miserable life of rejection. And here David says that the Lord is his rock. That means his salvation and his redeemer. The one who takes on the responsibility of rescuing him out of a miserable life of being rejected by God. The Lord is the strong hope of salvation. The Lord who is the, is the one who will take that responsibility of rescuing him upon himself. Rescuing him from a life of spiritual poverty. But how can this be? How can the one who is perfect, who sets the standard of perfection, also be the one who is the Redeemer, who rescues us from our inability to live up to His standard? How can the same God do both of those? I mean, either He is the judge who says, this is my standard, and if you fail, you're going to be punished. Or He is one who says, oh, I'll rescue, from that, rescue you from that judge. How can He do both? How can He be the lawgiver and the rescuer of the lawbreaker? Friends, that final description of God as rock and redeemer is a hint that God was not finished revealing himself. Not only not only was there more written word to come, of course, the remainder of the Old Testament and then the New Testament. God was going to reveal himself in a new way by making his word become flesh through the human birth of his divine son. Remember, I said that there are two ways we think about special revelation. One is the written word of God. But church, the other is the word made flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus, the God-man who lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died. He paid the redemption price with his own blood when he died on the cross. And so he is the cornerstone. He is the rock of refuge who is able to rescue us from our sin if we believe in him for salvation. This is the solution. Through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, God can declare us blameless, innocent, righteous, acceptable in his sight. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. I love these words. Hebrews chapter 1, first three verses. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How can God be both perfectly righteous and the redeemer of unrighteous sinners? This is how. By sacrificing his own son. In our place, the creator church is the savior. The creator is the savior. God has revealed himself to us. He is worthy of glory. He is perfect in righteousness. We reject his glory and live in disobedience to his word. But through the work of his son who died and rose again, he is able to reveal himself as the rock of salvation and the redeemer of sinners. Church, Jesus, Jesus is the gloriously righteous 
Redeemer. This is redeeming revelation. Praise the Lord. Have you trusted in Christ for salvation? Have you trusted in the redeeming revelation of God? If you haven't, today you can. Confess your sin to the Lord. Confess that you have sinned against Him. And ask God to declare you innocent, not because you are worthy of it, but because He has done the work of redeeming you through His Son on the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, would You work in us Your truth, however You want to work it in us. Our prayer, Lord, is simply this, that we, Lord, would respond in obedience. Help us to live for You. Help us to worship You. Help us to submit to You as our rock and our redeemer. Thank You, Father, for Your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.